I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is psychologist Carl Pickard, Ph.D., author of Who Stole My Child? Parenting Through the Four Stages of Adolescence. For most parents, the onset of puberty brings an unexpected, even unwelcome change in their child's behavior, which can cause bewilderment, confusion, and sadness. Well-known counselor, author, and educator Carl Pickard, Ph.D., draws on decades of work to help parents navigate the changes adolescents will bring about in their relationships with their children. He covers topics ranging from friendships and dating to substance use and abuse, social cruelty, and technology. He's the author of 15 parenting books and was a lead feature story in the Wall Street Journal, The Only Child, A Dose of Sibling Rivalry. He has been featured on ABC, NBC, CNN, and NPR. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you here, Doctor. Hey, good to be with you, Catherine. Well, well, we've all been through adolescence. So you and I have been through adolescence. <laughs> I can, yeah. So why, since we've been through it ourselves, why can't we understand what's happening with our kids? And I've had three kids, three boys who've gone through adolescence. So what's the problem here? Well, it's a neat question because it, it varies. Some people have really good recall about their adolescence, and some parents apparently seem to have almost none. Uh, in general, I think it's really helpful if you have recall because you can then share out of that your experience with your, with your teenager and, uh, and, and in such, and doing that, you kind of, kind of get on the same page with them. You say, I didn't do exactly the same things you did, you know, but I had my own ups and downs and changes and, you know, and this what you've just done just reminded me of what I did around your age and you can, you know, you can, it gives you gives you a base of connecting uh, when you have recall, which I think is good. But I think most parents probably, you know, they either deny or they just shelve that experience and go forward, gets encapsulated in what it's like to be an adult, and then all of a sudden are surprised by the changes that unfold in their teenager. And one of the other things, perhaps, is if you've done a lot of stuff as a teenager, you're afraid your own kid is going to do it, so you're trying to prevent them from falling into some of the maybe the things you know, behavior that y- that you did that you wouldn't want them to do and s- well so you I, think that's, a- <clears throat> I think that's true people <clears throat> to, to some degree you know parents uh, look back and they say you know I would wish that my you know my adolescent didn't make some of the decisions I did um, actually that's pretty good information I mean that acts that in fact uh, is information that you can share with your kid. I mean, you can say just, you know, just so you know, I made some choices uh, coming up that I don't think, looking back on, I would choose to do again. And uh, this reminds me of a couple of them, and I'll just share them with you in the hopes that maybe you can learn from my hard experience and not have to repeat it yourself. I think the difficulty is with as a parent, and probably as an adolescent, but as a parent, it it's really all of a sudden you've had this kid who's, 9, 10, 11 years old, and they look up to you, and whatever you say, they, they they take seriously, and then with all those hormonal changes, all of a sudden, you've got this kid, and obviously, that's what you talk about in the book, who <clears throat> sees you as, can see you, as a monster, uh, and it, sometimes it's all an overnight kind of thing that happens, or you don't see it happening, because it happens gradually as those hormones kick in, the testosterone and estrogen. 
Well, yeah, I think actually a lot of times, I mean, certainly adolescence can coincide with the onset of puberty, that is the beginning of sexual maturity. But uh, actually, I, from what I've seen, uh, adolescence often starts before that. Uh, so that while, while adolescent change can start, for example, beginning in the upper elementary grades, uh, puberty doesn't, a lot of times doesn't hit until the middle school years. Uh, but adolescence, I mean, it's exactly what you say. Adolescence begins with loss. Uh, and it's one loss for the parent, but it's also two losses for the kid because the, the loss for parent is that they're never going to have their adoring and adorable little child again. <clears throat> and that is a, you know, that's a memory to treasure and a, a loss to mourn. And then you move on to the next you know, wonderful set of years, which are the growing up years. For the, for the young person, what happens is they've got two losses. Number one is they've, they have to, you know, growing up is giving up, so they're going to have to give up a lot of childish things that they, lo- that they love, activities and relationships and interests, uh, and they have to let that go, and that's painful. And then all of a sudden, you know, they find that their parents are changing, and they're losing their wonderful and idealized parents uh, because now these people... You know, who were so beloved before are now getting in the way. They're making demands on you and they're setting limits on your freedom. And uh, all of a sudden, they're not as great as you thought they were. Uh, so, you know, this fall from grace is not only hard for the parents, it's also hard for the young person. You say it starts earlier than within puberty, for instance, and the book is written for uh, talking about kids 8 to 18, let's say. So what happens at 8? What happens? How does this, because it is a gradual process. What, if it's, well, I think yeah, what, what happens yeah. is the, in words or actions, uh, the young person you know, lets themselves and also their parents know that they no longer want to be defined and treated as just a little child anymore. And so they start bridling at that. And what they want is they want more room to grow. And so they start, you know, pulling away and pushing against and getting around to get that freedom to happen. And in the process of that, more abrasion is created in relation to parents. And now, you know, now the three engines, I think, that drive adolescence for separation and distance, for experimentation and exploration and for opposition and operating more in one's own terms, <clears throat> these drives start kicking in, and in the process, you know, there's, you know, there's just more static in the relationship as parents have and, and, and young person find more differences between them, you know, that have to be, you know, dealt with. And the, and the you know, the two, you know, the the two main forces I think transformational forces behind adolescence is one the one the kid has to start detaching from parents in childhood. Uh, and uh, assert more freedom of independence. On the other one, they have to differentiate from parents and childhood and express more individuality. And hopefully, you know, by the end of adolescence, somewhere in the last stage, 18 to 23, you have a person who has a, is able to assume more functional independence and can assume a more adequately fitting and unique individual identity. And that's a long, you know, it's a, it's a 10 to 12 year process. It's a long process and it takes a lot of trial and error and recovery and it's mistake-based education very often. And, uh, and, uh, but I think I, what, I would not, what I would not wish is for parents to, to dread adolescence. It is, it is every bit as magical as childhood was. 
I mean, think of what you're what you're seeing is a young girl develop into a young woman and a young boy develop into a young man, and you're participating in that process. And then, you know, and that's a very exciting process to be part of. Let's talk about some of the pitfalls, though, because some of those pitfalls, if they aren't dealt with or if parents don't deal with it directly with their changing uh, child who's emerging into adolescence, because um, I mentioned it in the opening when I was talking about substance abuse, uh, that right. social cruelty technology, those are all things that are realities that parents and kids have to deal with in today's Absolutely. world anyway. So those are issues. How do you manage those? Maybe be, let's be more specific about each one of those. Well, I mean, I think that, you know, the, the, the general overview is that the, the job, I think, of the, pro, the process and the question parents have to address is how do we stay caringly and communicatively connected with our young person as adolescence grows us apart you know, as it is meant to do. And so that what parents are trying to do is they're trying to keep that communication open and keep expressing positive caring to keep them emotionally connected. Uh, so they want to be informed and they want to be emotionally co- and caringly connected at the same time. And that takes initiative on the part of parents to keep themselves open to eat both listening and also sharing around certain kinds of information like the, what you described around you know, around substance use, around uh, social cruelty, around, you know, Internet life. Uh, and, you know, and also to keep, and this is, this is a hard one. I, it, it's so easy. The trap is so easy to get caught up in areas of concern and worry that parents all of a sudden stop initiating positive choice points for engagement. And so now everything's focused on worrisome or, or troublesome or <coughs> offending kind of, <coughs> excuse me, kind of activities. And in the process, the relationship is not being nourished. And you have to be able to nourish the relationship while you're going through a more contested time. Right, give us an example of that. Well, <coughs> well, the question I usually ask parents is, you know, is, are there any things that describe to me some of the ways that you have fun with your teenager? And here you've got an embattled parent. The parent says, What fun? Are you kidding? What, we don't have any fun. Well, describe some ways that you used to have fun or that you would like to have fun or that might be fun together with your teenager. And you try, I try to. You know, initiate, get the parent to inventory and initiate some of these possibilities because that's their job. It's not the job of the adolescent to keep parents close. It's the job of the parent to keep the adolescent close. And that means that they have to really upgrade their listening skills. They have to be instantly accessible when the kid wants to talk. And they just have to make suggestions about, hey, would you like to go out for supper? Would you like to go to a movie? Would it be something fun to watch together on the television? <clears throat> you know, <clears throat> or, or would you like to do some kind of household activity that we enjoy together? They have to keep initiating these positive choice points, and they have to do it without any sensitivity to rejection. Because a lot of times the, the young person is going to say, no, I don't feel like doing that. Don't take that as rejection. You take that just as, you know, sometime you're going to catch the kids and sometime you're not, but you have to keep that initiative going. 
Uh, that's, I think that's one of the great pitfalls I, I see when parents run into heavy water with their kid. Yeah, I think that's a good example, and I'm thinking in my own case, I remember one of the positives when they finally got a little older, I could take them to films that I like to see, and I didn't have to sit through another Disney movie, which right. they're great, but I, they're great for kids, but I never really enjoyed them, and that was always a big thing, and of course now I have three kids who are all involved in film, but um, yeah, I mean, I think that's yeah. that's a perfect example. That's beautiful, of, yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely, yeah, and I... <clears throat> I remember my, I think my mom's way, which was a neat way, was she'd find a way to take me someplace. Uh, and it could be out for a meal or to a movie or just go out to see something interesting, but something to essentially break set. And that's what you're trying to do. You're trying to break set so you open up at least a momentary possibility that reminds you that you are really caringly connected to this person. And you're sharing that special kind of experience. I think that one thing that you just said, I think doing something, maybe whoever it is, who's, I mean, you might have a mother and a father, a mother and a mother, a father and a father, who's ever taking care of you. It's nice also to establish an individual relationship with your kid, not just necessarily both parents or caregivers or whoever it is. And um, and you can do that when they get older. And, and maybe you enjoy something with your kid that maybe your partner doesn't. Um, and oh, absolutely. I mean, yeah. I definitely I had ways to be with my mom and ways to be with my dad that were quite different, but they were very, you know, they were, I mean, I was, you know, coming up as an adolescent boy, <clears throat> I think less than my older sister, I was less inclined to use talking to be together with my parents. But, you know, that's just one way to be together. Another way is companionship, doing things. And there were things that I could do with each of my parents that kept us close you know, while this growth was going on. What would you say when you do see your child, uh, perhaps getting involved with a group of kids that <clears throat> you can see isn't going to be, it's not going to be a good, there's, it's, it's not going to turn out well. Nothing good can come of it. How do you handle that? Well, yeah, I think you don't, what you don't do is you don't criticize the friends. Criticize the friends and you criticize the kid and then all of a sudden you encourage them into that relationship, you know, in more powerful ways. So I think what you do is you, <clears throat> you try to, number one, if you possibly can, to get to know these friends uh, because it's easier to be more comfortable with people you know than people who are strangers. <clears throat> and then if you have concerns about anything that these friends are doing that you don't want your kid to be involved in, that's what you talk about. You say, you know, I really respect your, you know, your right to choose your own friends. I do have certain kinds of concerns about some of the things they do that I would wish you not to participate in. Uh, and if that's, you know, if that is hard for you to resist, then maybe what, you know, we need to do is to have, you know, your, a lot of your outside contact, you know, have them come over here and you can be together that way as opposed to just taking off with them on, you know, on various kinds of adventures. Uh, but you try to, uh, parents, you know, I think if I was going to give advice to parents, you know, I think I would be, you know, you know, don't be afraid, be interested, and don't get alarmed, get informed. Uh, and, and, and it's easy for parents to get afraid and get alarmed. And in those states, you know, they don't make good decisions. They come down in negative ways that only make a hard situation worse. 
Yeah, I think one of the fears of parents uh, is that, well, if I'm too harsh and maybe they're not really doing anything wrong, they're going to back away from me. I don't have the same control over them, let's say, emotionally, or I don't feel that I do. And parents yeah. do, I think, back away. And they don't... They're, they they be, they become afraid. They're they, you know they're afraid of their own kids because they're they're afraid that they're going to, uh, you know, it disrupt their their relationship. Um, well, but, it, I mean, adolescence. I mean, that's a good phrase. I mean, adolescence is definitely disrupts the childhood relationship. Uh, and but 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 that's all right. I mean, what I mean, parenting an adolescent is not a, it's not a popularity contest. I mean, you have to take stands for the kid's best interest sometimes against what they want. <clears throat> and they do not say thanks a lot for, I don't know, not letting me go. Uh, but, I mean, the responsibility of parents is to keep that that structure, that family structure of responsible rules and expectations in place so his kid has, you know, a system within, you know, they can knock around in. You know, if parents back off from that and they throw up their hands and they give up, then all of a sudden, you know, this kid is going to learn different kinds of expectations and different kinds of rules from other folks like friends that are going to be a lot less reliable. Uh, so that, uh, you know, I mean, just because, just because you have become more frequently unpopular in your kid's eyes is no reason not to take the stands and share the information that, you know, you think the kid has to know and has to live with. Uh, and you're not... You know, I mean that's I mean that's part of your you know part of your statement to your kid is around these differences that I will, you know I will, I will be firm where I have to and I will be flexible where I can, you know, and I will always and this is the most important one I will always you know give a full hearing to whatever you have to say, uh, and that that piece has to be in place because a lot of times. A kid will go along with what parents want that the kid does not like because at least they have been given the respect of being given a full hearing about all the disagreement that they have. What about the flip side of that? Parents today who are um, helicopter parents who are so involved in their kids' lives and their kids welcome it. They call them all the time, three or four times a day, even in college, beyond 18 years old, to get their advice. And they, they aren't able to kind of get to separate and individuate as, you know, in social work terms. But what about those kinds of situations? Because that's not healthy either. Well, I mean, uh, you know, the... <laughs> You know what's the golden mean on this between holding on and letting go? I mean that's that's you know that that's the hard that's the difficult question. Uh, but I think you know what you do is you know you you hold on when you feel like there is something that you can do in a healthy way with and for your child, and you let go when you feel like they have adequate responsibility to make more decisions on their own. Letting go is, you know, it's one of the hardest parts of parenting because you let go and all of a sudden you put yourself out of the picture and you put the kid at more at risk of their own decision making. Uh, but, I mean, that's, uh, you know, that's letting go is, is just <laughs> part of the agony of parenting. Yes, do some parents hold on longer than others or do some parents let go earlier than others? Absolutely. Uh, and it's just it's just a judgment call. Even in those situations that you described, you know that's not going to go on forever. I mean, at some point you may, in fact, you know, delay the growth of ultimate independence. But ultimate independence will be taken. 
so that it doesn't deny independence. It may delay it some. Let's talk about technology. How does this affect adolescents today? Uh, oh well, well <laughs> and parents. Whole, yeah, that's a whole deal. I mean, the uh, you know that's why you know parenting today. You know, you you and I came up in in one world. You know, the offline world, and now we're parenting kids in two worlds: the offline and the online. Uh, and that that's that's. At, at, the process of adolescence hasn't changed, I don't believe, but the context has changed wildly with these two worlds. And so what parents, I think, are striving to do, I mean, the objectives I think parents have to have is, number one, they want their kid to be competent in this technological world because it's going to be part of their educational and occupational and social future. Uh, but they also want the kid to be safe, and so they have to help the kid understand where the risks are and they also want the kid to be balanced so that they want the kid not to sacrifice significant areas of <clears throat> offline growth to online escape. That's not going to work. So it's a, you know, it's a, it, it's, it's some very, very complicated judgment calls to make. Uh, but, uh, I, you know, I think in general, if you think of it as, it's, it's instead of just saying to your kid and sharing of yourself, you know, how was your day? This was how my day was. You know, you're, you're doing it kind of in two ways. This was my online day. My offline day was like, and this is what my online day was like. And you've got to be able to share out of both of those arenas of activity and normalize that. Uh, because this it's like anything else, any kind of risk area that starts emerging in your kid's life, you know, it has to be talkable. And what that means is that every, I think, every family uh, and every parent or parents have to have each day some screen-free time to communicate with their kid. And that has to be sacred, and that has to be established. Uh, screen-free time, and then you see parents sitting at the dinner table or any meal. Everybody's on their cell phone. Absolutely, and, yeah. This, and, yeah. A lot of times, parents, you know, they, they lament all the time where the kid is glued to their their smartphone, but they're doing the same thing exactly. And we have a generation also of the parents now are in their forties, so they grew up with they grew up online as well. So, well, that's right. That's and so that's. I mean, the the good thing is the the positive side is that the parents have. These parents that have been on, online for a long time have a lot of good online experience about how to navigate and how to take care of yourself and what you can do productively for yourself, and that's all good, shareable stuff. Uh, so that, you know, what we're talking about is that we're talking about a, you know, a technological evolutionary change, you know, that's altering the landscape, you know, of family life and parent-child and parent-adolescent relationships. Uh, and now, all of a sudden, you know, there's <laughs> there's more ways to be separate on the one hand because, you know, the Internet offers, you know, it's the greatest circus of human entertainment ever invented. Uh, and so, on the one hand, you need to be able to talk about, you know, the escape activities, the entertainment activities. By the same token, you have to talk about the importance of basic engagement skills that need to be developed that cannot be, you know, for which online activity, you know, has no escape. 
you have an example, worst case, I mean, you're an educator and a therapist, so therapist in the context of that, like worst case scenario, maybe example of a case that you've had, parent, child, adolescence, uh, involving what we've just been talking about and how you resolved it. Well, the, the, the one that I see very often is, is what happens with, for example, you send this, this kid off to college, and now all of a sudden they're in a strange place, uh, and they don't know anybody, and you know all their close relationships in high school have fallen away, and they feel lonely, and they're scared. And it is very easy for these kids at this point to sacrifice offline engagement with academic activities to online escape from these demands. And when they do that, all of a sudden, you know, they start, you know, disengaging from the responsibilities that they have to learn. Uh, and I think this is, it's not the only, it's not the only factor, but it's, you know, there's a fairly high, you know, attrition rate first year of college. I don't know what the, you know, sometimes the, uh, <coughs> You know, the, the, you know, the rate of <clears throat> rate of kids who don't complete their first year is somewhere around 50%, I think, at a lot of colleges. One of the reasons is that they lack the <clears throat> self-discipline to maintain offline engagement in the face of the temptation of online escape, which they now do because they're feeling so insecure and they're feeling so, you know, emotionally... <clears throat> You know, vulnerable, and uh, and I think that's you know sometimes you know when kids boomerang home at this point because they've you know they've managed to lose their footing. You know, one of the ways they have to find their footing is to start building up their offline capacities, and the major offline capacity that they have to build up is their capacity for self-discipline to complete what they start you know, to concentrate on the task at hand, to meet commitments, to maintain consistency, to, you know, be able to, you know, cooperate with others to get stuff done. Uh, and those are all self-disciplinary skills. And they, if, if the kid has been into online escape, you know, they have some work to do. Is that something you talk to your kid about before they go to college? Is that something that's, you know, so we can preempt that well, happening? Well, I think, uh, to me, I, I think, you know, one of the great, ignored parts of parental training once adolescence begins is in the you know is making sure you know starting 9 and 13 that you're that you're having the kid practice these self disciplinary skills you know can you complete what you start can you concentrate on what's at hand can you meet your commitments and promises can you maintain consistency can you cooperate with others you know in terms of consequences can you face the consequences and learn from the consequences of your choices I mean that's all. Those are all core self-disciplinary skills. You don't. You want to. When you graduate your kid from high school, you want those pillars of self-discipline in place. You know, and if they're not, you know, then the kid's going to have to scramble to learn those later on. That's great advice. We have a couple minutes left, so I, I want you to give us a website that we can go to, so we can. Who stole my child? Um, oh. Okay. Yeah, I, I have a website, www.carlpickard.com, and I've, for the last 10 or 11 years, I've written a uh, weekly blog for Psychology Today, uh, uh, Surviving Your Child's Adolescence, and uh, there are, I don't know, four or 500 entries of different topics on that that people can access if they go to Psychology Today. 
Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. Lots of good information. Um, and I'm going to, Who Stole My Child is the title of the book uh, that psychologist Carl Prickett wrote, Par- Who Stole My Child, Parenting Through the Four Stages of Adolescence. Thank you hey, very much. Hey, good talking to you, Catherine. I really Great talking it. to you. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Are you or someone you know interested in attending college? With both college tuition and college enrollment up 60% since 2002, there is a lot of competition, and careful planning needs to be a part of the process. Tune in to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation, hosted by Elizabeth Heaton and featuring a team of college coach experts. We'll bring you the tips, techniques, and know-how to navigate the road to college and do so the smart way. Listen live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What if there was a radio show that could demonstrate how we can cut your taxes in half without diminishing needed government services? One that could explain how to create tens of millions of jobs at no cost to taxpayers, as well as fantastic yet easily affordable health care. Side effects include cutting crime rates nationwide, providing better education for our children, international peace and harmony, and protecting your private personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working for you with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on Voice America Variety. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is attorney and mindfulness expert Julie Potaker, J.D. Her book is Life Falls Apart, But You Don't Have to, Mindful Methods for Staying Calm in the Midst of Chaos. Mindfulness expert Julie Potaker is sharing an easy way anyone can incorporate more joy into their daily lives. Life is full of emotional chaos, says Julie, but bringing it back to focused activities that give joy to your soul can mean the difference between making it or breaking it day to day, year to year. She began her serious study and investigation of mindfulness after graduating from the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction Program at the University of California, San Diego. Her life experiences inspired her to study mindfulness with Rick Hansen, becoming a graduate of his positive neuroplasticity training professional course. She also completed Brene Brown's Living Brave Seminar and is founder and chair of the Balanced Mind Meditation Center. And you can go to www.mindfulmethodsforlife.com. Welcome to the show, Julie. Nice to have you here. So great to be here. You first, as I understand it, came to learn about mindfulness from a physician who recommended it to you after you came in to his office or her office sharing severe 
stress symptoms. So what happened? Right. So I, I just caught the tail end of your prior interview with the guy who was the expert talking about his kids' adolescence <laughs> or talking about all children's adolescence and what you should do and what you shouldn't do. I wish I would have heard from him then um, because it was my kids' adolescence that definite, definitely um, threw me off a cliff. And I was experiencing such stress that the wrong words were coming out of my mouth. So I thought I was having a brain experience, maybe a, maybe a brain tumor. And so I went to a neurologist, and it was the neurologist, after clearing me of any medical symptoms, um, said to me, you actually have too much going on in your brain with your three teenagers with ADHD and your community work and your aging parents and the whole constellation of what was going on, you actually need to calm your brain down to slow your brain down. And he recommended mindfulness-based stress reduction. So that's how I got started on the whole thing. And then being the nerd that I am, I kind of went deep once I realized, oh, this is really a thing. You were an attorney, or you still are an attorney. So were you also practicing law and taking care of your aging parents and your adolescent kids with all of their issues all at the same time? No, I was not. I retired from practicing law and became a full-time mom when my kids were little and we moved to California. But I was taking on huge board responsibilities because it was the, the inner critic work that I hadn't yet done that said, you know, you're, you, you're not really... Oh, I've never even admitted this to anybody. So good morning to you. It's really early here for me, but yes. I'm just going to say this out loud on your show. Okay. I didn't feel like I could really respect myself unless I was running nonprofits or, you know, president of the board of this or that because I had been an attorney and I dropped all that because I had the privilege of being a full-time mother. But being a full-time mother, to me, inside myself, there was a voice, obviously, that didn't that that was enough. So you're that said feelings, that that was not enough. Yeah, your feelings of self-esteem were tied up into how productive, not as a mother, but as a lawyer, as a as you exactly. say, being ahead of all. I think that's a fairly common thing for women who are particularly professional women and women who have been in business or have been running organizations, and they're supposed to feel that they're supposed to get all those kinds of grats in the same way, but taking care of their kids and it doesn't necessarily work that way. Yeah. Right. And taking care of your kids is a pretty thankless job, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Yes. It's, you have to be, it's much more difficult, I think, than, than being a, a being a professional or being in the, in the working world. I think it's much more difficult. You can't just put your phone on, do not disturb. One of the other things was that doctor, and I don't know how many years ago, was able to recognize that you needed to work on yourself and get involved in this mindfulness. Um, Yeah, this was a particularly... uh, I'm calling it um, psychology for yourself. Uh, That's pretty amazing. This guy was was amazing. He had a huge following here. Um, He's passed away um, years ago of cancer, and I'll never forget his name because his last name was Chippendale, which I always thought was kind of a riot, 
like the Chippendale dancers. Um, so he and his wife actually both taught MBSR, Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction, which, as I know you know, is a 40-year-old curriculum. And it's taught all over, all over the place in hospitals everywhere for the past 40 years. I didn't end up taking it from him because his town was a couple towns away from my town. So I took it closer to home at UCSD. And because I took it at UCSD, it opened up a whole world of other courses because the UCSD Center for Mindfulness um, has, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 really good offerings. So it just enabled me to go from one thing to the next and keep learning. And it was the Mindful Self-Compassion Curriculum that I took that was completely transformative, which is built on the old curriculum of MBSR, but it adds components of self-kindness and common humanity to the mindfulness. That was it. That basically healed me, cured me, and then they um, advertised a, a teacher training for that in 2014, and I took it in the first cohort of teacher trainings. There's thousands of us now all over the world, and started teaching that class. And then I added other stuff to it, of course, because why not, right? If you have people captive for six, eight weeks, you're going to try to hit them with everything you've got. So, But before we get into the specifics of, of actually what it is, how did that affect your relationship with your children? Because it's oh, obvious. I'm so much. Yeah. Oh, I wish I could have been this good of a parent when they were little. I'm I'm so much less reactive now. I'm calmer. I'm a better listener. I have tons of compassion. I'm very slow to react. It's like your amygdala reacts instantly. I feel like that pause, you know, opening up a, a space between the match and the fuse, I feel like that pause from all these years of meditating is pretty well-defined so that I can notice what's coming up in my body if I feel, you know, one of them does something horrendous. They're in their 20s now, so they're pretty, they're, they're 90% of the time pretty awesome, right? Mm-hmm. So, but if something will happen, I'll, um, you know, I'll notice like, wow, that's worry coming up in my body or that's anxiety coming up in my body or that's, whereas previously you, I would have just reacted. Like most people just react. I'll notice what's going on with me. I'll work with what's going on with me. I'll wait. I'll watch. I'll say to myself, wow, honey, that's, that's really tough. And then we'll have a conversation. And it's an entirely different way to show up to the people that you love. And then they show up differently. And then the people that they encounter show up differently and on and on and on and on. And it creates just a, a better world. So a better world with the rippling effect in a good way, right? Uh, exactly. And the, yeah, and so your three kids, do they practice mindfulness, actually practice it? Do they know the whole process? Yes, they do. It's really, it's, it's really amazing. Kara, who, Kara and Danielle are identical twins, and they're 24. And when she was, I want to say like 14 or something, I made her as a consequence to a, uh, some bad behavior, take the mindfulness-based stress reduction class for teens, and the parent had to go with her. And she really hated the class because she was a teenager and she knew better and she wasn't going to do it and blah, 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 blah. (laughs) Meanwhile, the kid is now so spiritual and she meditates 
every single day. Um, and that- Danielle, the, the one who um, had a, she had a rougher childhood, even though they're identical twins growing up in the same house. They're both really empathic and really sensitive, and she sort of leaned towards more depression than anxiety. And she, um, she got involved in drugs and alcohol and had to go to rehab. It's in my book, so I'm not saying something I'm not allowed to say. That's her business. Um, but she, she just got her Reiki energy healing certificate. She's, she's seriously into yoga. She meditates every day. So um, they're, they're totally on the program. They, they came to it their own way, but they completely appreciate it, and we speak the same language, which is super nice. And my son, who I never thought would get into it, and my husband got into it through gadgets because they're like gadget guys, and they use the Muse headband to meditate, and they both meditate. That's a great story. I mean, that is a success story with the whole family. And most many people, it is amazing. And many people always, uh, I think one of the excuses for not meditating is I don't have time to do it. I mean, I would like to do it. I need it. My family needs it, but I really don't have time. What do you say to that? I, I call BS on that. <laughs> Everybody has time to put the headphones in and follow the voice. I think they, what they don't have time for is to be annoyed. You know, they don't have time to sit and watch their mind chatter, and they're not skilled enough to do that, and it's annoying. So don't set yourself up for failure. Just download Insight Timer. It's free. Put the headphones in. Tell them how many minutes you have. You know, it's from zero to four minutes or five to nine or 10 to 14 or 15 to 19. I'd pick 10 minutes. And then just play somebody talking to you in your head and follow their voice. And after, I don't know, a week or two, you might find, wow, I'm, I'm noticing things differently. I'm calmer. I'm showing up in a different way for people in my life. And then it becomes, I want to do it for 20 minutes. Ooh, I want to do it twice a day. Or, oh, I feel different today. I feel a little rough around the edges. Maybe it's because I didn't make time to do it. You talk about in the book, we have to, if we want to do this and we want to be, I'll say, successful at it, that we have to, we need to know what our own core values are. Can you explain what does that mean? Why do we need to do that? Oh, my gosh. How much time do you have, really? Because the core (laughs) value thing is, it's a big, it's a big chunk of the curriculum that I teach. But you know from your, from everything that you do, what your core values are. I mean, and living in accordance with your core values feels better. So if you, if your core values are generosity or patience or truth or honesty, living in accordance with your core values makes you feel more comfortable. What if your core so values investigating and figuring out what those are? You know what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. But what if the, and those are all very positive. I mean, can you stumble if you have core values? And I mean, this is for the audience. Like, and they aren't so good. You know, they aren't the kinds of values you just described. But maybe there, there's a lot of negativity in your values. Then what? Well, I think it depends. 
how you're defining values. So um, let's say you're a criminal, hypothetically. Um, you know, this is a whole this is a whole interesting tangent on mindfulness. Can you be a mindful assassin? Can you be a mindful bank robber? Absolutely. If you've got if you don't have ethics and you don't have wise action or wise words or wise choice or or however you would want to characterize that, and you're paying attention to what you're doing when you're doing it, you could use all that power for for bad instead of for good. So. I think um, getting in touch with who you are and what makes you happy uh, is kind of at the bedrock of how you want to be as a human being. Well, given that, then let's take some of these because I know you have Julie's five tips for experiencing more joy. Let's go through some of those. Let, what, very, they're, they're e- easy to do, very easy exercises, I would say. Um, so the, jo- the joy part is it's, it's putting in good stuff into your, into your body, into your brain, into your mind. So if you're going to be watching the news, especially, you know, in the last couple of years, you could probably be walking around a pretty miserable person. So turn off the news, first of all. Second of all, write a list of what gives you joy. Because people, when they're feeling really negative, it's hard for them to turn the channel. So if they have a list to look at, oh, walking in nature gives me joy or calling this specific friend gives me joy or a really good cup of tea or taking a bath or whatever it is, planning a trip, even not taking the trip, but planning it gives you gives you great dopamine bumps in your brain. Write a list of all the big and little things that give you joy and then make sure you do one of them every day. And then the the real brain health comes in from when you're feeling a positive mental state because you're doing something that gives you joy, really let it sink in. Savor it. And that is installing a positive mental state into a neural trait and that's rewiring your brain for more happiness and resilience. That's the positive neuroplasticity training, the Rick Hansen stuff that's so unbelievably beneficial for humanity because each person that does it will get a happier brain and then they'll be a less negative person. And that really works, right? I mean, I've, I've had several people on my show, scientists as well, who, uh, I mean, studying this neuroplasticity of the brain, and I guess they can actually see it now. You can see it in a, in a I don't know whether it's a CAT scan or whatever it is. You can see. It's the fMRI. Yeah, you can see it. You can see it, and, you know, and I, I did it with my own brain because we have a negativity bias, and we're wired as primates to worry and to ruminate, right? So that's, what kept, that's what's kept us alive. But we don't have to worry about and ruminate about the things in today's world that we had to when we were being like chased by saber-toothed tigers or whatever, but our minds still are built that way. So when your mind's wandering, it can be a pretty unhappy place. So if you want it to be a happier place, you need to be wiring and firing new neural pathways that are happy, joyous things. And how to do that is noticing when you're having a positive mental state and really, that's a beautiful sunset. What's for dinner? No. That's a beautiful sunset. Oh, wow. And just 
noticing for a few breaths how it makes you feel in your body. Boom, you've done it. You've made a new bridge. And the more you do that and the more often all day long in and out that you do that, the happier your default mode network's going to be. And then you just show up as a better person to all the other people who are mirroring your neurons and the whole humanity gets raised up. Staying in the moment, I think the whole I, distraction is a huge thing today. It's so difficult. I mean, as you say, we have to do it and practice it because there are just so many distractions. I mean, I do that myself. I am thinking of 10 different things at once, and I'm not focusing on what's happening. This is the negative. This is what not to do and trying to right. do something at the same time. And um, obviously, that's not a good thing. It's not a good thing for your body, for your mind, or for the person you're interacting with either. So staying in the moment. Um, do you think that... Last night, I actually yeah. put toner on the on the little cotton pad, the stuff that you're supposed to put on your face. I actually was so distracted that I was taking my eye makeup remover off with toner that's not supposed to be anywhere near your eyes. Right. That's a good example. So the mindfulness teacher falls into this too. I was like talking to my husband in the bathroom and I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I just did that. And I was flushing my eyes with water and I was like, wow, I need to slow down. So it's a practice. You don't get it right and then it sticks. You have to keep going back and going back and, and, and reminding yourself. Yeah. Practice and then it becomes much more spontaneous, right? I mean, you begin to, you just do it in a spontaneous way so that you're not uh, putting a nail polish remover in your eyes, which is not a good thing. Exactly. Yeah. No. And I've d- uh, done similar things that I wouldn't want to talk about just just because I was distracted. <laughs> exactly. So, it's like when you're driving and you park and you go into the grocery store and you come out and you have no idea where your car is. Yes. Well, that is, a, I mean, I have the wrong kind of car because I have a, a silver, like, SUV, and it seems to me so does everybody else, but it's a pretty, <laughs> <laughs> so that's why I blamed it on somebody else, not myself, right? But, um Yeah. <laughs> So I have ways to try and, you know, not do that, looking and seeing, you know, mm-hmm. what part of the grocery store, what does it say, you know, on the grocery store. Exactly. Yeah. Those kinds of exactly, things. Exactly. But you have to pay attention, right? Yes. You have to pay attention mm-hmm. to do that. You have to say, now I'm in the parking lot. I want to remember where I put my car. So I'm going to look and see if I'm if I'm opposite uh, from the V of Vons, because that's our local store right here in La Jolla, California, if you were thinking about the conversation that you just had with your kid that upset you, you wouldn't have the wherewithal to do that. You would have been ruminating. Or if you were worried about the next thing that was coming up, you wouldn't have had the wherewithal to do that. So you have to be mindful in the moment to know where you parked your car. It's so difficult to, not just with the car parking, but that is the difficult thing to do. Obviously, that's the basis for all of this, but it's like really making yourself stay in the moment because there's always that planning ahead. You should be planning ahead. You have to mm-hmm. think about what you're going to do next. You, and that's, we sort of get, I think we engage in that behavior from day one. Um, and so it's, as relearning, really relearning those behaviors is not easy. Do you think it's easier now for the next I generation, agree. though? 
Julie, like the next generation or like people who... No, I think they have it worse. I think they have it worse than us because of all the technology and their their bosses can find them 24-7. I mean, it's they're going to have to really know how to put up some barriers so that they can get a, a work-life balance where they're not actually going to check their email or their phone from whatever it is to whatever it is, you know, maybe 7 or 8 p.m. to 6 or 7 in the morning. Otherwise, they're just constantly connected. We don't let them have their phones at the dinner table when they come over for dinner. You know, and we didn't let them have their phones at the table once everybody had cell phones and they were in high school. But, I mean, you you see families out at restaurants. Everybody's on their phone. They're not looking at each other. They're not talking to each other. It's like it's it's pretty... I don't want to judge, but I think it's pathetic. <laughs> but you, and you are. And I'll give you another example. We went out for just the two of us for dinner at a in New York City at a very expensive restaurant. It was a whole evening. And it was not, it, you know, formal, not formal. It was, I would call it fairly formal. These young kids. Fine dining. Fine dining. Young kids in their 20s came in, sat there. And I'm, and I'm not going to tell you how much it cost, but they sat there and ordered, you know, had this meal. And every single one of them, probably for 90% of the evening, were on their cell phones. No, I mean, it, wow. it was, yeah. And knowing that generation, they were probably taking pictures of their food and putting it on Instagram. You're absolutely right. The table beside us, that's exactly what he was doing. Mm-hmm. So how much are you enjoying the food if you're take you know taking pictures of it and well not yeah. so much yeah <laughs> not so much not staying in the moment do we cover it's the a crazy five world diff- it is a crazy world but um it's also exciting though i mean and this whole thing about get, i mean i love it in terms of getting information and anything I, I i i mean i'm one of those who if i'm in a conversation and we can't remember something i'll say oh okay let's just google it and find out the answer. And I don't know how good that is either. Um, I don't know. I find I do that with my sister a lot. Um, It's really weird. It happens with some people more than other people. Like we'll be hanging out with my dad and somebody will have a question about something and she'll say, let's Google it. Um, But I, I do a lot of sailing and when I'm on the boat, we're pretty disconnected and it's wonderful. We only have a couple minutes left, barely. I okay. want to, yeah, I mean, I, I want to make sure that everybody knows how they can connect with you. Talk about connecting uh, quickly. Uh, we're talking to Julie Potiker, and her book is Life Falls Apart, But You Don't Have to, Mindful Methods for Staying Calm in the Midst of Chaos, website we can go to to get more information about you and about the book. It's www.mindfulmethodsforlife.com, and it's also Mindful Methods for Life on Facebook, which is a super happy place. If you want positive content coming your way, you'll never find anything to bum your bliss out on that, um, on that Facebook business page. But also on the website, if you go to the Reading and Resource tab, it's like going into a fabulous library. It's all my teachers' books, their websites, their newsletters. It's just a really great place to noodle around and learn. 
Great. Thanks so much for being on the show today. I really enjoyed the conversation. Me too. Thank you. Thanks. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 